Good morning, church. It's good to see you once again. We're going to come back now to where we began two weeks ago in the Sermon on the Mount. You turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, the fifth chapter. Jesus begins this incredible sermon with these verses that we call the Beatitudes. The word says, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's our privilege as we come to this portion of God's word to recognize that Jesus is sending out his message right at the start of his public ministry. Matthew is very orderly in his presentation. As you remember, Matthew was a tax collector when Jesus called him from his tax collector's booth to become a disciple, to follow him. Matthew was a good accountant, and he pays very close attention to detail. And all the way through his presentation thus far in the gospel, he has laid out who Jesus is. In his careful genealogy, he lays out for the Jews that it comes through Abraham, through David, and to Jesus, and now to us, to recognize the Messiah. In the birth narratives, he gives careful attention to prophecy. He tells how John the Baptist prepared the way for the Messiah to come, just as it was prophesied. He leads us through Jesus' baptism, where we hear the voice of God from heaven, This is my beloved Son. And then through the temptation in the wilderness where Jesus was tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin. And now Jesus has called his first disciples. And here in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, he sits them down there on the mountainside and he begins to lay out for them his direction. He establishes what he wants for their lives. All of Jesus' teaching now will be an expansion of these Beatitudes. Every parable, every object lesson, every miracle will be to just go a little farther, a little deeper into these statements about the Christian's character. They are the marks of the Christian's life, who we are. They're exactly what Pastor Gordon was talking about last week when he was talking about our spiritual health. And wasn't that a a wonderful message to our hearts? To recognize that that spiritual health is what Jesus has in mind when he opens up to his disciples these words. It's much like when in Galatians we read about the fruit of the spirits: love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. These are the things that grow from our lives if the Holy Spirit is living within us. This is the fruit that comes from the Christian's life. And in the same way, these marks of the Christian character make up who we are if Christ lives within us. Even as Jesus sets the scene, he focuses on the fact 
that his teaching is going to be central to everything that we do. He sits them down. Every uh, rabbi would teach sitting, and so he sat before them. He gathered his disciples. The word means learners. They are to learn what Jesus has to teach. And so it indicates that the teaching of Jesus Christ is at the heart of our faith. And everything we do will be about this teaching. But there's a danger if we take the teaching of Jesus without seeing Jesus as our Savior and the one who fills us by his Spirit. For these teachings on their own strength would certainly be very discouraging to us because we cannot keep them by our own strength. Only as he lives within us can these words be characteristics of our lives. Now, all of his listeners had heard the the teaching of the prophets. They had heard the words of John the Baptist. Most of that had been judgment and woe and a call to repentance and a reminder of our sin. But where does Jesus begin? He begins with blessing. And with each statement of the Christian character, he says, Oh, the blessedness of the one who is poor in spirit, the blessedness of the one who mourns, the blessedness of the one who is meek. We recognize this blessing is ours as Jesus lives within us. Now, this is much more than happiness, which can rise and fall with our circumstances and our emotions. This is the very blessing of God upon our lives. And so he begins with this trilogy of blessing, with the blessing of those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, and those who are meek. It's this conflict of pride and humility that Jesus brings out right at the start of this message. You might expect him to start on a much higher note when he's talking about, okay, these are the plans I have for you. First of all, you'll be poor, then you'll be mournful, and then you'll be meek. It's exactly what Jesus wanted to teach us. That in order to follow him, all this self-reliance, what we were just singing about, That has to go. We depend upon him every day. Now, in Luke's version of this, it says, blessed are the poor. It doesn't even mention being poor in spirit. And that's in keeping with both the Old and New Testament. In Deuteronomy, God says to Moses, once they come into the land and become prosperous, they will fall away. Jesus explains to his disciples how difficult it is for the rich ones to enter the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor. We recognize that when we recognize our own need, we call upon Jesus and are fully dependent upon him for all of our hope. But Matthew focuses on this concept of being poor in spirit, of recognizing our spiritual poverty. And in that poverty, recognizing that our need is felt deeply, that we are lost without him. This is the harshest word they had for poverty. Someone who is hopelessly helpless and dependent. Totally at the need and mercy of God. We recognize the need for that. The basis for all of these Beatitudes is the death of pride and the birth of dependence. And all the way through Scripture, the heroes of Scripture go through this process. And we must go through it as well. Gideon is said to be of the lowest tribe and the lowest family of that tribe. And yet God called him to a marvelous, victorious act. Moses was conscious of his inadequacy all the way through. Lord, how can I do these things? Indeed, in Numbers chapter 12 and verse 3, it says he was the humblest man on the face of the earth. We recognize it in in David. Lord, who am I that you're mindful of me? 
We see it in Isaiah the prophet. In chapter 6 of Isaiah, he is broken before the Lord. Lord, I'm an unclean man and I live in the midst of an unclean people. It comes into the New Testament with the same emphasis. Peter says, Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. And Paul calls himself the chief of sinners. We must come in humility before God with an awareness of our spiritual need. Our spiritual poverty. And so with that self-awareness, we are then ready for a God-awareness. Knowing that I am incapable of my own strength, I realize that only through Him can I live this life the way He calls me to live it. Now, in Hebrew poetry, what we're going to see in each of the Beatitudes is that the second line completes the meaning of the first line. And so here, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs and only theirs is the emphasis is the kingdom of heaven. God's kingdom is around us, but he says that kingdom can be within us. And it only belongs to those who are poor in spirit and recognize their own need. For until we recognize that need, we're going to be trying to solve life on our own self-sufficiency. God says once we recognize the need, we can move into his fullness and the fullness of his kingdom within us. And to be mourn and meek follow logically from this. Once I recognize my spiritual need, I mourn over that need and humbly ask for forgiveness. Now, each of the Beatitudes stands on their own as a specific blessing. But there's also a flow through the Beatitudes. We see it here at the start. If we are poor in spirit, we will mourn over that. We will meekly ask for forgiveness. And once we've asked for forgiveness, we will ask, begin to act in a merciful way. To see that God will do great things through us. If we hunger and thirst for his righteousness, we then will seek to live in the midst of that righteousness. And once I'm living in that way, he says, I move on then to the purity of heart. Which is that my will becomes one with his will. And God purifies our hearts by faith. And once that purity comes, we want to live within our world as peacemakers. And when we are peacemakers, it leads to persecution. There's this flow through the Beatitudes that Jesus is showing to them. The Christian life fits together. We recognize that he continues to build upon the things he has taught us as we are walking with him. And so those who mourn, it also stands alone when we suffer loss. I never fully understood this verse, this concept in Scripture, until my wife uh, passed away suddenly. We had been high school sweethearts. We had dated for five years. We had been married for 35 years. My partner in ministry and our children were, were raised, and then suddenly she was gone. And in the midst of that heartache, I felt God's comfort as I had never felt God's comfort before. Because the deeper the sorrow, the greater the comfort. The word that Jesus has for the Holy Spirit is our comforter. The one who comes alongside of us. The one who then dwells within us and strengthens us. A verse that spoke volumes to me during that time is found in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 10. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. I realized then it wasn't up to me to pull myself up and be strong again. It says he himself will restore you 
and make you strong and firm and steadfast. God is our enabler. He is our comforter. He comes alongside of us. He lifts us up. And the promise is, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Whether that's mourning over our sin, or whether that's mourning over a loss of a loved one, or any other loss in our lives. Because you see, joy is not the opposite of pain. But joy is the result of pain that has been relieved. As we recognize that God has come into our lives and given us his own peace, his own presence in our lives to recognize that comfort. As we move into the idea of meekness, the word has truly been distorted in our world. It's kind of associated with weakness. But in Jesus' day, it was not that at all. Indeed, some of the greatest heroes of Scripture are called meek. From Moses to Jesus, we recognize these people are called meek, and yet they became angry against sin. They recognized the power of sin against us in this world. The term in Jesus' day meant to be completely controlled by God. They used it as a term for every domesticated animal that had every instinct, every impulse, every passion under control. And so we, as godly people under his control, can walk in quiet godliness and confidence. Now, in Jesus' day, the Jews took great pride in their race. The Romans took great pride in their power. And the Greeks took great pride in their knowledge. Well, think of us in our own country. We have all of those. That pride is just all the way through our culture. We have to recognize that only in God can we find strength. His strength is made perfect in our weakness. And so Paul said, then when I am weak, I will be strong because I will boast of my weakness. God strengthens me, and it's only through his strength that we live in this way. And so the idea is that we will then inherit the earth. Now, that's not just some futuristic thing. If you're meek long enough, someday you'll inherit all the kingdom of God. We talked about this when we were looking at our Advent Series That God reveals himself in creation, but only his redeemed children truly see his hand at work. We are good friends with the creator. We inherit the earth. Now we enjoy it and it will one day be ours completely in Jesus Christ as we seek his coming. And so in this overview of the Beatitudes, and normally we'd take a lot more time on each of these, but I just want to kind of give us a bird's eye view of where Jesus is going in this ministry. He moves then to the fact that we will hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now again, in the words of the first century, that is the harshest word they had for hunger. It's the word that is used after 40 days of prayer and fasting in the wilderness. Jesus was hungry. It is the hunger of someone who is dying of hunger. It is the thirsty of someone who is dying for thirst. That's the kind of desire we must have for godliness. For righteousness. Remember we talked about how the Holy Spirit convicts us of righteousness. Jesus in the upper room said he would not only convict us of sin, but of righteousness and judgment. The Spirit convicts us that there is a right way to live. And I develop that hunger and thirst for that righteousness. I will not settle for less than his righteousness within my life to recognize the importance of that. And so we have... A desire for goodness, but is it that intense? A desire to live a righteous life, is it that intense? We must pray for that. We must recognize his truth. And that hunger develops as we go about our Christian walk. 
It's much like physical hunger. I don't get up from the breakfast table and say, okay, now I've got to start getting hungry for lunch. I go about the the duties of the day, and sooner or later I'm hungry once again. And so in our walk, we continue in the spiritual disciplines, study of the word, prayer, fellowship, fasting, all the things that God calls us to do in the spiritual disciplines. And we develop this hunger for righteousness. And the deeper it gets, the more hungry we are. We want more and more of Christ as he reveals himself more and more to us. And the promise is in that continuing tense. Not only will you be filled, you will continue to be filled. If we will have that hunger for his righteousness within us, he will fill us to overflowing and continue to fill us. It was a controversial statement then by Jesus that we would be merciful. It doesn't sound too controversial, does it? But in Jesus' day, it did. The Romans despised pity. They said it was weakness. The Pharisees in the, in the Jewish sect said, you know, they lived in this harsh self-righteousness. And even the Jews had kind of adopted the philosophy that suffering was a punishment for sin. Remember when they saw the blind man and the disciples said to Jesus, Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was struck blind? And Jesus said, neither. That's not what this is about. And so this idea of mercy is something Jesus is introducing to his culture and something that needs to be reintroduced into our culture. Jesus gives us a brand new direction. And over a few chapters, he expands on this as we look to the parable that he tells over in chapter 18. Let me read it to you. Peter kind of sparks this discussion by saying, how many times should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times. He thinks he's being very generous in this. Jesus says, I tell you, not even seven, but 77 or even 70 times seven. The idea is there's never enough forgiveness here. Keep on forgiving. And this is what he tells in his parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement... A man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debts. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. Let me interrupt the story at that point and tell you how ridiculous the story was to this point. The amount that Jesus sets here is the equivalent of $10 million, something that could never be acquired as a debt from a servant. And yet Jesus wants to see the incredible contrast in this story that he's telling. And so the the idea that he would sell off all of these to pay the debt would never come even close to paying the debts. But then the servant goes out. He found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii the equivalent of about $20 in our currency. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. The master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. 
Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had it on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers until he should pay back all he owed. And here's the end result of the parable. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. And so we begin to see the great contrast of Jesus' story about mercy and how if we are not merciful, he will withdraw that mercy from us. It is dependent upon our reaction. If we will just see the incredible contrast of how much God has forgiven us, how can we hesitate to forgive trifling things for our brothers and sisters? We need to recognize that Jesus sets this standard for us. He has forgiven us everything. He has shown incredible, endless mercy to us. Shouldn't we show mercy to others? And so he leads us into this truth. And the promise is, if you, if you show others mercy, you too will be shown mercy. And so we begin to see just what Jesus is talking about. But now we come to a part in the Beatitudes which changes the tone entirely. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Now, all of the other Beatitudes, in some part, have been man-initiated. Things that we could do in order to find the blessing of God. But this only comes from God. Only God can purify our hearts. All through this week, the church has called us to days of prayer and themes to our daily prayer and fasting. And the theme for today is that we we would be so filled with the Holy Spirit that we'd be able to fulfill the ministry God has for us. So we recognize the incredible power of the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to read all the verses that I've listed there in your notes, but you can do a detailed study of these where it talks about purity of hearts. And it talks about the contrast. In Romans 8, it says that the mind controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. And then over in 1 Timothy, Paul writes to his child in the faith. He says there is constant friction between people of corrupt minds. But then all through Scripture, it gives us the other side of this. Isaiah said God will give us perfect peace if we keep our mind on Him and trust in Him. If we'll keep that focus and keep that trust, He will give us the peace that only He can give. Peter says, cast all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. Peter writes over in his second letter, I have written all these things to stimulate your minds to holy thinking. And so we recognize that God has done some great things in teaching us. Let me read you these words from Philippians. It's the great chapter of Jesus emptying of himself and coming in humility to come among us. Chapter 2 of Philippians, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, If any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then here's the challenge. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. 
That's what these Beatitudes are about. That our attitude would be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so we recognize that he has this in mind for us. And over two chapters in Philippians, he says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And then he says, Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, Put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. We begin to recognize that God has for us purity of heart. He purifies our hearts and then we can have a right mind and a right motive for living our lives. Helmut Tillich, the great German pastor, said one of the most horrible things is to do the right things for the wrong reasons. It's possible even in our Christian context. It's possible to give in order to feel important or to pray in order to feel self-righteous or to serve for self-display, to attend church for social respectability. But the result of purity of heart is that we shall see God. And so we want our motives to be pure. And so he purifies our hearts by faith, the word says. No one is naturally pure. God purifies our hearts as we bring our offering to him. In Jeremiah, it says, the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. And David in the Psalms says, create in me a pure heart, O God. But finally, in Hebrews 12:14, the word is clear, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Now or in the future. It is about this holiness. Jesus said, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So we recognize that he purifies our hearts. We come to this beatitude of, of purity of heart and recognize his truth, that we can find that purity as we walk with him. And if I live by that lifestyle, it changes who I am. I become a peacemaker is the next step in the beatitudes. Now, there's a lot of difference between a peace lover and a peacemaker. Many make New Year's resolutions and top of their list is, is peace. But usually what they're talking about is a lack of conflicts. But peacemakers actively make peace in the home, in the church, in the community, wherever we are. Sometimes that peace comes through struggle. But what's the result? Peacemakers are called the children of God. We are acting like God when we are peacemakers. When we bring his peace into a situation. Peacemaking is what God does. In Ephesians 2 it says he preached peace to those who were far away. Peace to those who were near. We can provide peace as we become peacemakers in our worlds. 
and if I'm a peacemaker, guess what? It's going to result in persecution. Because the world doesn't like peacemakers. They recognize that there's some change that they have to commit to if there's going to be peace. And we can only have peace as God gives us that peace. And so we pray that he would give us peace and then we share that peace with our worlds. And we can have peace even in the midst of persecution. If we serve as a conscience to the world, we will be persecuted. But listen to what it says. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Not for the sake of our own foolishness, but for the sake of righteousness. He said, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you falsely for my sake. We recognize that this persecution comes not because we have deserved it, but because he gives us his peace. Let me read you these other verses from that fourth chapter of Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God will be yours, and the God of peace will will protect you. We recognize that that's what Jesus has in mind when he says you'll be peacemakers and because of that there will indeed be persecution. But what makes you unpopular with this world makes you popular with God. We recognize that we walk to a different drummer than the world does. And so when he fills us we are transformed. He says rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. He says, when you are persecuted for my sake, you're in great company. That's the way they've treated all the prophets who went before you. That's the way they will treat all Christians after us if the Lord tarries. We recognize he calls us to this life. One of the days this week as the church was calling us to prayer and fasting was to pray for the persecuted church. Do we recognize how persecuted around the world today? More people have died for their faith during our lifetimes than all of the generations from Jesus until now. People are dying for their faith every day. We need to stand up for our faith and be strong in this witness in the face of persecution. Persecution for us here in America is more ridicule than it is life and death struggle. But God help us to stand by our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world and to stand true to our faith as we proclaim it in the midst of our day. These marks of the Christian character are only possible as Christ lives within us by his Holy Spirit. And so we'll be following up more details on this. The the staff has already been posting in the mission minutes various beatitudes. I'm sure our new pastor will at one point guide you through these in more detail. But for now, just see the overarching nature of these Christian character statements from Jesus and live in the way he wants us to live. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have made clear that there is blessing in living your way. May we not strive to live our way, but surrender our will to yours. And in that surrender, recognize that you will fill us with all of your power and strength. 
as we recognize our spiritual power, as we mourn over that poverty, as we mourn over it, as we are meek and humble in your presence, you will bless us. You will give us a hunger and thirst for righteousness. You will give us a sense of your need to show mercy. And you will purify our hearts by faith. You will truly make us peacemakers and give us the strength to overcome persecution. We are yours, Lord, and we want to live as children of yours. Guide us into this day and this week. In the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you, church. The Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face to shine on you and give you peace. This day, in his name. God bless you.